0: Well, welcome to Confessing the Faith, a podcast devoted to discussions concerning Christian doctrine and Christian and the Christian life. My name is Joe Anity. I serve as pastor at Emmaus Christian Fellowship Church in Hemet, California. And I'm joined today by Steve Martin, who is currently serving as the coordinator for the Association of Reformed Baptist Churches of America, which I will from now on refer to as ARBCA, uh, because that's quite a mouthful. But uh, Steve, I do want to thank you for taking the time... Uh, to have this conversation with me today. I really appreciate it.
1: Joe, it's my privilege. I've been looking forward to it.
0: And uh, I asked Steve if I could interview him. Uh, Really, with this objective in mind, I wanted to give the people of Emmaus Christian Fellowship a glimpse into ARBCA. Um, Associationalism is nothing new to us. Uh, Well, it's fairly new, but not brand new to us, at least. We've been a part of the Southern California Association of Reformed Baptist Churches. Uh, We call it SCARBC for short. Uh, For over a year now, and we've really come to value and enjoy the relationship that we have with those churches. Um, But when we joined SCARBC, we did so with the intention of considering ARBCA once we had experienced associational life on the local level for a while. Um, uh, SCARBC and ARBCA are not formally connected, but most of the churches in the local association are also in the national association. We'll talk more about that in a little while Um, But we've been hanging around ARBCA for a while now. Um, I've personally been to three of the last four general assemblies. Um, I've also been to the school of church planting that ARBCA puts on when it was offered in Arizona. Russell, one of our elders, attended another school of church planting when it was in Ontario, California. I wish I would have known that that one was coming up. I probably wouldn't have gone to the one in Arizona, though I did enjoy my time with those brothers out there. Um, Our eldership's been tracking along with ARBCA for a while now. We've given careful attention to the Confession of Faith. We've also been reading the ARBCA position papers. And uh, we've been talking about the possibility of joining ARBCA openly with our congregation for a little while now. And the thing I'm trying to say here uh, to get to the point is that uh, the eldership of Emmaus does believe that the time has come for us to take the steps towards pursuing membership in ARBCA. And uh, one of the things we need to do is really bring the congregation along. Um, It's challenging, as a pastor to go off to these general assemblies to really enjoy the fellowship there and the whole experience, and then to try to find a way to communicate all of that to uh, the local congregation, it could be a really challenging thing. So this is an attempt at that. And uh, so Steve, with all that said, I do appreciate you taking the time to do this because I think it will be very helpful in giving our people a glimpse into ARBCA and the inner workings of, of the organization. Um, But Steve, I think it would be good to simply, uh, ask you to begin uh, by telling us a bit about yourself, your, your background, your testimony, and the position that you currently hold in ARPCA. Would you mind starting there?
1: No, that's actually a wise place because I, I walked in your shoes. Um, I was saved as a junior in college in the Midwest in 1969. I tell people that the Earth's crust it just hardened so you could walk on it and you can read about 1969 in history books. But if you're my age, you appreciate the movement of the Spirit of God on college campuses in the late 60s and early 70s. And I was converted, and um, I was afraid to graduate because I was afraid I'd have to do something with my life, and I had no clue what to do with my life. And um, being converted by the grace of God gave me meaning and purpose, and a whole lot of things changed. I went on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, served in Southern California for a couple of years, and then in the Midwest— While I was on Campus Crusade staff and studying my Bible, particularly the Book of Romans, I came across the Doctrines of Grace and it confronted me. And I struggled with it for a couple of years and finally came to affirm them wholeheartedly. Had to leave Campus Crusade over the Doctrines of Grace. And then um, when you come to see the Doctrines of Grace, a lot of things begin to change and there's all kinds of implications that takes years to work out. What does this mean for worship? What does it mean for evangelism? What does it mean for having a whole Bible? What does it mean for holiness and things like that? So it took me some years from 1976 until probably uh, my final year in seminary, in 1981, that I um, was really wrestling with what do you do with these things. And then finally, was there anybody alive today who believes these things? Because I didn't know a single person. I didn't know, didn't know a single church. Mm-hmm. And I would ask Presbyterians, they say, well, they're all dead like Spurgeon or something like that. But in um, the grace of God, someone gave me Martin Lloyd-Jones biography, volume one. He died in 1981. And here was a man of God who saw things working of the spirit of God that I'd only dreamed about, not, not had not experienced. But I saw that God was still using people today, that Calvinism was not the, the greatest form of total depravity, but that it was um, a position that could be that was biblical, honoring to God, life-changing, and I was very small and God was really big and that's a good place to go forward. I um, signed on as an assistant pastor at a church that claimed to be Calvinistic, but um, the pastor changed his views after a while, decided to go with pragmatism, whatever got you biggest, quickest was right, and anything that was doctrinally precise or careful was to be eschewed or set aside and but he left to go into missions work and I became the senior pastor and began to try to put a foundation of doctrine underneath the um, all the good things they did for, for the only reason because Mr. Big told them to do it, not because they saw it was biblical. So um, I began to reform that church in 1985 and um, reached a crisis through some parachurch workers who didn't like the doctrines of grace and We're also pragmatic, and we began a new church in 1989 and joined ARPCA, or what was then RBMS, in 1990. We didn't want to be a one-church denomination. There's a danger if there's nobody else around you who is on the same page. Um, Baptists used to have a hierarchy of the Trinity, the deity of Christ, and independency. That was their doctrines. And they'd fight you tooth and nail for each of them. Um, but independency, as I experienced in my parent church days can lead to, you have no, um, accountability to anybody, the pastors, the Pope, one man rule. Um, it's easy to be a one man ruler. The trouble is you have to wear all the mistakes you're making. Your people have to wear all of your mistakes. As I tell some young pastors, would you want to raise your children without your wife? Mm -hmm. And I said, you need elders. You need people around you to help you be a faithful minister of God. So um, when we formed as a confessional church in 1989, we, we found, I had found other people who holded this Dear Baptist Confession, and it's more than just the five points. Um, it's a full-blooded confession, and that's important. I think Jay Gresham Manchin, who's a hero of Protestants for different reasons, um, said back in the early 1900s when asked why he, wouldn't, why he was a champion of fundamentalists, but wouldn't call himself a fundamentalist. He said, fundamentalism is too small alleged to stand on as the waves, the acid waves of modernity crash on the shores of America. You need full-blooded confessionalism to stand true. And so I thought, well, exactly. So we didn't want to be a church of um, fight and fundy five-point Calvinists. We wanted to be, have as much, hold on to as much truth as possible. Right. Right. And I know this is kind of a long answer, but one other point I can give here is uh, a pastor or a church that embraces confessionalism has a bigger bullseye on your forehead, on your chest, and on your back than you did before. Because let's think strategically. Let's think outside of our little box. If I'm the devil, and I'm not, but if I was, I would go after confessional churches first and hardest because big... Mega churches are giving away the truth as quick as they can to fit into the culture. Mm-hmm. Hi, we're just like you guys. Come and be with us. But confessional churches are trying to hold on to as much truth as possible, preach it to whoever will come, teach it to their people, help their men get it, their wives get it, their kids get it. And that's a greater long term threat to the devil than these bigger churches, which are much bigger but hold to practically nothing. So, um, we saw that a spiritual battle was real, but we wanted to hold on to as much truth as possible for the sake of the Christian tradition, the Christian heritage. What are we going to pass on to our kids?
0: Right. right. So, as, as I hear you talk like this, Steve um, – can you hear me okay, by the way? Perfect. Okay. It's not coming through quite right on my end. But um, as I hear you talk like this, it reminds me that uh, you know when we started Emmaus Christian Fellowship a little over six years ago – um, I had a similar experience. You know, we we held to the doctrines of grace. Uh, we were tending towards confessionalism, uh, full-blooded Reformed uh, theology, um, but we felt like the only people on the planet. Also, uh, we really felt isolated. And so, what a nice thing uh, to be able to sit here with you six, little over six years later, and to hear you talk this way, and it, for it just to res- resonate uh, with me to say amen uh, to all the things that you've just shared. Um, What about your position in ARBCA? Tell us what it means to be the ARBCA coordinator.
1: I pastored in Atlanta for 31 years, and I retired from my church there in 2012. I was asked by other churches in Georgia. When our church began in 1989, there were no other confessional churches in Georgia, Alabama, Tennessee. There's one in South Carolina, none in Florida. We were the Lone Rangers, and if we didn't have a phone, I wouldn't have fellowship. And over the over time, by the grace of God, uh, nine churches popped up. Uh, like I noticed last week, we had a rain here in Texas, and there was mushrooms growing the next morning that weren't there the day before. And they're like mushrooms after a warm summer rain. We've God popped up, Reformed Baptist churches, confessional churches around Georgia, and these men said, "You know, you had a hand in all of our churches to some degree. You were our great encourager. Why don't you do it full time, and we'll try to pay you something." So I was the state coordinator, such as it was, for a couple of years, and then ARPCA asked me to become the national coordinator, and I was glad to do it. Um, I counted a privilege and kind of pinched myself. I view myself as having a ministry like Barnabas, of not being a big fish but encouraging other people.
0: What do you do? Uh, What does your week consist of? Um, What sorts of things do you do on a yearly basis?
1: Okay, well, as the coordinator, it's my job to, um, as I view it, to dig trenches between churches. Uh, George Whitfield said there was things going on during the Great Awakening in different churches, and he didn't do much except build, dig the trenches that connected churches so they could communicate with each other and cross-pollinate. Uh, I meet with pastors for lunch, take them out to lunch, buy them a cup of coffee, listen to what's going on, give them a book. You know, reform guys always like books if you give them a book be your friend for life. Um, commiserate with them. Um, sometimes I'll call up guys who I know are going through hard times and say, hey, I'm down at the bar. I'm on the next to the last stool. I'll save you a stool. Come on, let's talk. And so, you know, it's hard being a pastor. It's hard being a reform pastor. And um, I try to encourage guys. I preach for them. I'm preaching the rest of the month of August in different churches here in Texas. I'm going to be out in California in the fall and hope to visit Hemet if saints will have me. Mm-hmm. Um, try to um, explain ARPCA to new churches like um, in Georgia there was a fraternal of 15 Calvinistic Southern Baptist pastors who met monthly and I would meet with them met every once a month for four years gave them free books, listened to them, talked to them tried to explain confessionalism to them help them be a resource um, I had no authority but I had lots of opportunities so um, my job is like that today. I have very little authority, but lots of opportunities. Sure.
0: <laughs> Would you help us understand something of the history of ARBCA? Um, you know, we're we're brand new to this, and uh, I, I know there's quite a rich history there. And to be honest, uh, you know, as a newcomer, it was a bit intimidating to try to understand uh, where all of this came from. Uh, but help, help us understand better uh, how ARBCA came to be.
1: Well, so go back to and- church history can be either boring or exciting depending on who you are and who's teaching it, I suppose. But, um, after world war two, there was a resurgence of the doctrines of grace. Um, it had fallen in hard times from roughly the civil war to world war two from 1860 to 1945. But after 1945, God seemed to be working. Men were studying their Bibles. There was a resurgence, particularly among Baptists of the doctrines of grace. And, uh, So these Calvinistic churches, some of them began to discover the confession. It's like, where have you been all our life? We didn't know the confession existed. In fact, when Spurgeon became pastor of his church in London, one of the first things he did was reproduce the 1689 confession because it had just fallen out of use. It wasn't refuted. It was just kind of forgotten. And so he held up the confession and said, hey, guys, we don't need to have a new systematic theology by a Baptist by a Baptist um, theologian every 20 years. Why don't we just be faithful with what we've already got? Stad water, like a chia pet, only this is much more powerful. Anyway, I bet you haven't heard that illustration with the confession. I confets.
0: have not. No, no, that's good though.
1: <laughs> anyway, anyway, um, and as more and more churches began to adopt the confession, there was a concern for mutuality. Okay, there's um, a couple of churches in the same area can support a missionary to send someone to Columbia, South America, like Stan Line went back in the 60s. Um, and there was an organization called RBMS, Reform Baptist Mission Services, that um, came into being so that Baptist churches could cooperate to get missionaries to the mission field. Um, one church might support one missionary, and if the church in Hemet is so blessed by God to have a man raised up to go and preach the gospel, that would be exciting, but I bet you don't have the resources to support two or three or four guys. And so, But if you should have ever have two or three or four guys working with other churches, you could probably get them to the mission field. Our BMS had a great record of if you were called, you could probably get your, your support raised in six months to a, a year max, but usually within six months, whereas I knew that and as Campus Crusade continued to minister from the 60s on into the 2000s, it might take some other staff members two or three years of full-time support raising to raise their support. But our churches are committed to missions and so, anyway, RBMS was doing a good job with missions. But after a number of years, um, it became obvious that there was going to be a problem. A finite number of churches can only support a limited number of missionaries. And so we met, a number of us met at the Banner of Truth Conference and in uh, Carlisle, Pennsylvania back in 1996 and said, we love RBMS, we're glad to be a part of it. I've been a part of RBMS since uh, 1990 and we said, we want to do more than just have uh, missions. What about uh, church planning here in the States? What about mission? What about uh, ministerial education? What about publications? Things like that. So um, six of us decided that we would call a conference in Atlanta, we offered to host it, and men were invited to come, who were part of our excuse me, part of our BMS, and say, this is what we propose. We're not going to discuss whether or not to do it. We're going to do it. And if you want to join us, come join us. We're not going to discuss whether or not it should happen. We're going to do it. And if you don't want to do it, that's fine. We love you, but this is where we're going. Mm-hmm. Everybody came, and we knocked out the basics of a Constitution in three days, People went back to their home churches. The uh, committee worked on the fine details, but then everybody went back to their home churches to meet in Mesa, Arizona in 1997 to formally vote on the confession, to formally walk, come forward, sign their name to the dotted line. We joyfully hold to this confession and we're committed to this association of churches. Um, that's the briefest of brief uh, how we came into being.
0: Yeah, that's helpful. I appreciate you sharing that. Um, I have this question written down, but you've already begun to touch on it, Um, but I think I should ask it again, and maybe you can add to uh, what you've already said. Why do you believe in associationalism as opposed to radical independency on the one hand or maybe Presbyterianism on the other hand? Um, What would you say in response to a question like that?
1: I think there's a couple of good answers. It's it's an important question. Um, First of all, Radical independency believes that each local church is an entity in and of itself and really shouldn't have much to do with other churches. And frequently it comes more from the psychology of the people who started the church rather than from a biblical basis. Um, In Acts 15, when a problem comes up, the churches came together, not just the apostles who were alive then, but elders from the churches came together to discuss this. This is something that affects all the churches and everybody who can get their carcass to Jerusalem needs to be there and talk about this and work through it. And then the apostle Paul would, um, address more than one church in his letters and say, well, greet the church in Hierapolis for me. And most Bible students believe that the book of Ephesians was a circular letter because the Greek, um, to, to the Ephesians, uh, at the very beginning isn't in many of the manuscripts. It was perhaps attached to some of them, but, um, it was a letter meant to be read in all the churches. There was a connectionalism. Uh, there, I remember one time one of my elders in the early days of our desiring to be confession or be associational said, why do we care about all these other churches? And I said, well, if we're the last church standing, it's going to be pretty quick before we fall too. We, we need to care about other churches. The New Testament shows a compassion concern for other churches. Paul solicits help from the church in uh, Corinthians to help with the church in Jerusalem. Um, I think the Confession itself teaches that in Scripture, uh, communion is not simply the Lord's Supper, but holding fellowship together, treasuring fellowship in ways that Americans are still kind of strangers to. I think that, um, for example, the doctrine of hospitality goes along with the doctrine of um, of appreciating the one anothering and one anothering is not just one-on-one in our church, but local churches helping other churches. When uh, Lakeshore Baptist Church down on um, uh, the Gulf of Mexico was hit by Hurricane Katrina, um, First Baptist Church of Clinton led by Fred Malone and Mitch Axum led the, spearheaded the efforts to help those people rebuild. And so troops of Reformed Baptists around the country would come down twice a year to work on rebuilding that church until after Half a dozen years or so was completely rebuilt, refurbished, and ready to go. Well, what many churches can accomplish, one church couldn't pull itself up by the bootstraps and do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there. I think there's reasons why cooperation in missions, cooperation in training men for the ministry, um, cooperations in church planting. Uh, let's say I used to live in Southern California, and if you wanted to plant a church in 29 palms or someplace like that um, okay well it would be great if we had some help doing it that um, we believe local churches should work as much as possible with other local churches have each other's back um, one of the things people ask is well how intrusive would an association be in a local church we, we love our pastor and our elders and uh, how intrusive would an association be in Uh, The biblical answer is the association can't take anything away from a church. It doesn't give to a church, and we understand the New Testament to teach. We'll give you the right hand of fellowship. We'll acknowledge you as our fellow brothers, and the right hand of fellowship. Maybe a holy kiss will come later, Joe, but at least we're after fellowship. (laughs) And then um, a commendation. We believe this is a biblical church. We believe these men are good and orthodox, and we commend them to outsiders, should you run off the rails and become a guru and start wearing a yellow saffron robe and shave your head and teach weird things, I'd be really sad, but I have no power to intervene in your church, but we would remove the right hand of fellowship and our commendation because we can no longer do either in good conscience. And we would leave it to that local church to deal with its own matters. So that's a little bit of how we believe there is such a thing as associationalism and working together taught in the Bible, but not an invasive way that we don't Appoint pastors or elders. We don't take them away. We have no governing authority in your church per se, only as that your church as an entity would be either kosher and orthodox or it wouldn't be. But um, it's not an intrusive associationalism.
0: What are the benefits that come to the local church through the association? If you're really trying to sell this to a local congregation, um, first of all, I really appreciate the fact that when I asked you about associationalism, you began by giving – a biblical warrant for it. Um, so we're not driven by pragmatism. We're not saying that we should do this because it's the best way, uh, practically speaking, right. to, to, to right. do things. We're saying we should do this. We should form associations because it seems to be uh, the biblical model. But uh, that said, what are the benefits that do come to a local church through joining an association like Arbca?
1: Well, I think there's, um, first of all, mutual accountability. Uh, like you've profited yourself when the issue of divine impassibility came up. I like, I liken it to a bunch sitting in an outhouse when a tornado comes by, and boom, you're sitting there and suddenly you're looking up at the moon and this is all a big shock and what just happened. Maybe it's a little graphic for some people. Anyway, the point being is that a lot of us were taken unawares. We had to study. We had to, we had to cross-pollinate one another on this issue of what does the Bible teach about the very nature and character of God. And so some, some men in some churches, frankly, did not have the training or the background to do much study or know where to go for help, and they leaned on other guys for books, insights, you know, where can I go on the web to find some good stuff. Um, some of our men who are more trained were able to do some teaching. And uh, so, for example, on, on mutual accountability, it, it's helpful to know that other people have our back. Um, when it comes to training men for the ministry, um, we train men in our church in Atlanta From 1998 to 2011, we had a training school, and it was for men who couldn't afford to fly out to California and go to school there. If you were 40 with three or four kids, it's going to be hard to move to California and support yourself and pay $11,000 a year to go to seminary. But um, we tried to take tapes from other seminaries and hodgepodge together a small seminary-like Bible college situation. But... um, we knew that it'd be great if we had other men working with us, that we could have really good training uh, to help our men as they move forward. So that as we pass through the next generation, our grandchildren—I have grandchildren who are teenagers—who's going to pass through them? So ministerial training, um, of course, missions and church planting, uh, accountability—who has your back? Um, when we first became Reformed Baptists, so to speak, we'd go on vacation and our kids would have always say, uh, Dad, where are we going to go to church? Who else believes like us? And we try to find a Presbyterian church or a Calvinistic Baptist church. By the grace of God, what was very sparse in the 80s has turned into something that's not only dotting the landscape. It's not that we've covered America, but it's dotting the landscape. And more and more men are coming to these, I see not just the doctrines of grace, but full-blown confessionalism. We don't want... Uh, the watered-down version. We want we want the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So it's good to be a part of a group that are on the same page. You can help each other, watch out for each other. I called a pastor today whose son died outside of Christ at 37 from a heart attack.
0: Right.
1: What a what a heartache. And but he's he said I'm so appreciative of the people who contacted me and, and called me. Not just people in his church, but other people. Okay. And so um, when I first became a Christian, the world became big again. I had lost my vision of the beauty and glory of life In my when I lost whatever faith I had as a child. When I was converted in college, the wonder of God and the bigness of God, the glory of God's creation came back to me. Being a part of Christ Church is an incredible privilege, which, to be honest, is one of the things I had to learn even as a Christian, that um, in the 60s and early 70s, me and Jesus with are with my Bible. That was the Christian life, and the church was just like the icing of the cake, but it wasn't the cake. Me and Jesus and my Bible was the cake, and I had to learn not just the biblical doctrines of salvation. What's the biblical doctrine of the church? Right. Right. What's the biblical doctrine of the pastor? And uh, Instead of being an isolated unit, I need to be a part of what God was doing, and what God was doing was through his church. And I needed to treat the church like he did.
0: Yeah, Amen. I agree. What are the requirements for joining the association? Early on when we started to talk about associationalism, some of our people have asked, you know, are, are there fees involved? Do they charge you money uh, to come into the association? And, uh, of course, we've addressed of, that.
1: Can we suck it out of your account? You know, like, <laughs> right, um, but, but describe,
0: describe what it looks like to come into ARBCA. What are the, sure. uh, what are the requirements for joining?
1: Uh, first of all, there's, there's not one flat financial requirement. Mm-hmm. If you were a church of 1,000, uh, we would expect you to give proportionally. If you're a church of 10, uh, if you want to join our bill, you, you would be welcome. We have a couple of churches that are around the bubble with 14, 16, 18, 20 people. Uh, we didn't require a certain amount. Um, it would be just sad if you gave nothing in the course of a year. Uh, even if I when I was very poor in my seminary days, we tried to give something, you know. Okay, but there's no re, there's no required amount. First of all, financially, um, we ask. Well, you, you have to first of all have another church know you and recommend you. Um, that way, a strange church that says, "Oh, I believe that confession. We want to join. Can't come in," and we find out that they're who knows what, but. Another church knows you, they know your practices, they know you and your elders, and they, they can, you know, give a confirming amen to you joining. Uh, the membership committee would interview you and your elders, ask you questions about your doctrines and your practices, hear your testimonies. Um, let's see. I have to ask, I have to get my, some information for myself here. Um they have a formal written application. Attendance at at least one general assembly prior to joining, you've done three, so you're good there. Um, and, for example, even after a church joins ARPCA, should it change pastors and the pastor comes from a non-ARPCA church, we would interview him to make sure he he really holds to the confession and that he's a confessional man. One of the, there's a saying about liberty is the price of liberty is perpetual vigilance. And it's true in, in theological matters. Um, we've had men come into ARPA in the old days or come into RBMS and take a church out because nobody knew where they were coming from. And even the church hadn't interviewed them very well and then find out that this guy wants to go here, there, the other, other place. So each local church can do what it wants to. We have no power to control you. But if a new man came in to be the pastor of your church in Hemet, we would want to interview him to make sure he's on the same page as you are and that the rest of the
0: association is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so obviously the, 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 um, the confession uh, plays a really large role uh, in, in ARBCA. Um, the, the association requires full subscription or – I've heard also the, uh, the the term strict subscription. I'm not yeah. sure which is the uh, official terminology. of uh-huh. full, full? Full. Yeah. Um, and some, hearing this, especially those who come from more of an independent background, might be asking the question, well, why why does the association require subscription to the Confession of Faith? Why are uh, men not just allowed to say, I believe the Bible? You know, And uh, I think our people have been exposed to this kind of talk enough uh, in the past. They probably understand it, but I think it would be worth uh, saying a few words about it uh, even here. Uh, why is full subscription to the Second London Confession required to come into ARPCA?
1: Full subscription on the part of the pastors and elders okay. is our position. Um, some people have caricatured us as frisking people at the door and make sure they dot their eyes and cross their T's on every theological doctrine. As a theological um, baby, you don't know everything. If you're converted and truly converted, uh, you can join a, a biblical church, but you would be foolish for someone to make you an officer or teacher because you don't know anything. You need to grow in the faith. And so – the confession is a means to guard that where there's always more to believe, but we're not going to believe less than the confession. Um, we live in a day that people are very subjective. That means they live by their feelings. Um, you know, people, people get some of their theology from the radio and TV and, oh, the feeling's gone. I guess we're going to have to get a divorce. Well, biblical marriage is not based upon my feelings. Uh, it's, not, it's based upon what the Word of God teaches my assurance of my salvation is not based on my feelings. You know, if I had a bad taco for lunch. I'm just gripping the toilet maybe. I don't feel anything other than what you want to die. That doesn't mean I'm not a Christian. And this means I had a bad taco. Or if I have a bad head cold, it does, I don't feel anything. Doesn't mean I'm not a Christian. But sadly, there are so many people who live their lives by their feelings. We try to live our lives by what the Bible says and let the feelings catch up as they can. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways we can do that is hold to the whole confession. Now, again, we would expect your elders and pastors to hold to it. Uh, laymen can play catch-up, so to speak, and they'll know in your church, we believe a lot of things, but you're going to hear things in line with this confession and may take time for people to catch up. You know, I knew people who, the Lord's Day, really? I mean, I'm doing good to go to church Sunday morning at the Lord's hour. What do you mean the Lord's Day? A couple years later, as they mature, they go, the Lord's day is my favorite day. It's my one day to keep my sanity. It's the sanity saver day. Or some people struggle with definite atonement or they struggle with who knows what. But it takes time to mature and study the Bible and say, I'm placing my mind in submission to the word of God. And we're trying to say with the confession, here are things that have been hammered out for hundreds of years. Here's a place that you can have as a sure foundation you don't need to keep digging it up and re-examining it. Was this really true? You know, is Jesus really God? Is there really a Trinity? I've actually known churches that tried to operate without a confessional statement, and it was just an entire nightmare. You don't want to have it to reinvent the truth with every elder board or every group of every new pastor who comes through. Um, one of the things too that is true among Christians and Christian leaders. Our association is based upon common commitment to the truth of the scriptures, as written down in our confession. We believe a lot of other things, of course, but minimally to what's in the confession. There are other groups of Christians who gather together of kind of I call a good old boy or crony system. Hey, Joe, you and I are buddies. Let's let's have our churches in fellowship. Well, um, that's fine, but what if one of the churches drifts from the truth? Well, if the pastors are still buddies, they'll just let the truth drift and they won't really call it to one another accountable mm-hmm. we would want to say we're held together by the confession not by a good old boy network because good old boy networks can descend into sin I've seen seminary professors who wouldn't vote against their fellow seminary professor who had gone off into heresy because well his office was next to me for 18 years and I don't want to make him feel bad well it's not a question of my fellow professor feeling bad is? If he's no longer holding to the truth, then we need to hold him accountable. And having the confession means that we're committed to truth over relationships. I don't want to bulldoze anybody. I don't want to be unkind to people. I'm not writing people out of the kingdom if they don't hold to the confession. But if we're going to be in association together, we all need to be on the same page in what we believe.
0: I've come to really appreciate that, even to the point where I can't imagine pastoring at a church that does not have a confession of faith. Um, it, it just, um, you know, the thought of it uh, r- really bothers me um, because I see the value of having the confession in the in, in the context of a local church. Um, you, a man cannot be an elder or deacon at Emmaus Christian Fellowship without subscribing fully uh, to the Second London Confession. And that should bring a great deal of stability to the church in many ways, to the teaching ministry of the church, to the unity of the church. And I fully agree that um, it should not be required of every member to fully subscribe to the confession because, as you say, people sometimes need to to, to learn and to catch up. Uh, But certainly they would not be permitted to come into the church if their intent was to disrupt the church and to undermine the doctrines uh, that are publicly stated. And so in order to come into ARBCA, the officers of the church must be, uh, fully subscribed to the Second London Confession, and in that way, it protects the integrity of the association. It makes it possible for us to work together in substantial ways, um, and and that's what I love about Arbca, is that it's much more than just a uh, pastors' prayer fellowship. Let's say you know, um, uh, you had a different term f- for it, and uh, I appreciate that too. But um, yeah, there's something robust going on in Arbca that. I'm really drawn to personally, and so are our elders.
1: Let me tell you, I pastored a church as the senior pastor for four years and as the associate for four years, so a total of eight years I was in a church that had a ten-sentence ten statement of faith. Uh-huh. And every parachurch ministry in the world was in that church, and there was battle royals every week. Right. Because the agendas, there were so many agendas. You let your kids eat white sugar— you don't put your kids in the you don't put your kids in Christian school or home school. You don't vote Republican, how can you call yourself a Christian? And people would get in fights and arguments and it was and people would come back from a charismatic seminar with healing hands and they're gonna fix everybody in the congregation. And it was one nightmare after another. And one of the things we noted besides the fact well, we noted at one of our first business meetings at our new church once we had the confession. It wasn't anything like the business meetings in the Three Ring Circus Church because there weren't forty agendas with each person's personal thing being put forward. Christ was the story. The confession talked about His agenda, and that's all we wanted to support.
0: Right? Yeah, I've, I've heard the phrase over and over again that doctrine divides, but Jesus unites, or love unites, or whatever. Uh, there's different versions of the the same, uh, um, you know, phrase. It's not, that's not true in my experience, actually. Uh, clearly uh, defined um, and clearly communicated doctrines, such as are contained within a confession of faith, uh, make unity, deep unity, possible.
1: Amen. Yeah. Says doctrine divides is not true. Heresy divides, but mm-hmm. doctrine is a bad rap for pointing it out.
0: Yeah. Amen. What is the relationship between the local associations that exist around the country and ARBCA? I thought we should probably address that. We've really enjoyed our time in SCARBC. You know, we we live close to these other churches, so we get together every three months for quarterly gatherings. Um, It's really been wonderful. Uh, But what is the relationship between these smaller uh, local associations and the national association called ARBCA?
1: That's a good question. We had our state association in Georgia, Georgia Association of Confessional Baptists gaffed me. sounds like you're clearing your throat when you said And you (laughs) Scarb the BC and you got Texas area tarp here in Texas. Um, There's not a unity exactly because I think they're all a work in progress. Uh, They're all trying to figure out, okay, what are we going to do? I think long term, to be honest, if God is merciful and we continue to develop and grow, is that the future will be in the local associations because um, there are guys that I would only see at national associations once a year and he might live in across the country and I wouldn't get to see him. So we're probably not going to fellowship and hold each other accountable or trade stories or whatever. I couldn't be available if he had a real need. But your fellow pastors in the geographic area are going to be uh, the ones that you can really connect with. Like in Georgia, we had a, a pastor's fraternal in the spring and our general assembly in the fall. Churches were all within driving distance. They might be four or five hours away, but you could do it. And um, I saw that we saw that as probably where it was going to go in times to come. And recently there's been an association started in Louisiana. They've got seven or eight churches and there's one started in the uh, Ohio River Valley. And then um, we had the one in Georgia. There's one in Texas. Um, I think it's just a matter of time as churches grow, more and more will be regional. Our state association did not have identical constitution, pretty close to identical, but not exactly identical constitution, but um we I, I thought of us as really kind of a subset of ARPCA, but they were, you know, they weren't legally joined. Uh, there were churches that were members of our local association that were not members of the national. And um, they couldn't see themselves going to national assemblies, and they didn't have the money, frankly, to travel. And I think they liked just having a spend a tank of gas and go to fellowship meetings. Mm-hmm. So, so um, anyway.
0: Well, the advice given to us when we were talking about Arbca and Scarbc was to start with the local association. I think that was really good advice. Yeah. Uh, you know, you need to build substantial relationships with the churches that are in close proximity to you. And then to consider the national, uh, you know, from my perspective, I, I mean, it's, it's undeniably true that there are more, uh, resources coming together in the national association. Therefore, there is the possibility of doing more in regard to missions and church planting and, uh, you know, starting up a seminary. I can't right. imagine any local association pulling that off, uh, beginning a seminary on their own. Who knows? Maybe it'll happen sometime, but, um, I think it was very good advice to begin with the local, but we do see the value of the national, too, in order to partner even in more um, grand endeavors. Uh, so very much looking forward to the possibility of it. Uh, you know, uh, I'm hoping uh, that we will uh, be ready to apply for membership in ARBCA uh, by the next General Assembly, which is in May. Is that right?
1: We moved into early May because we were meeting in Fargo, North Dakota. Mm-hmm. We didn't want to jump from ice flow to ice flow you know, to get across
0: yeah, yeah, that's going to be quite a trip up to Fargo, North Dakota. Um, but looking forward to that very much. We'll see what uh, the people of Emmaus think. I'm hoping they're going to listen to this and then offer feedback uh, to the eldership. That's my prayer. Um, but we're excited about the possibility. Uh, would you describe the process for joining the association? Uh, I think you already did that, actually, um, kind of in passing. Uh, you need a sponsoring church, right?
1: You need a sponsoring church. You need to fill out a membership application form. You'll be interviewed by the membership committee, which which goes over each membership and each examines each, each local church. The sponsoring church will have to be a church that knows your practices. They, they've been with you, that you don't handle snakes on the side or something, you know, that right. they, they know your practices. And um, you've, you've attended more than one General Assembly already, so you know what you're getting into in a sense. So that would be it. Um, like I said – you need to be interviewed by the membership committee. You need to fill out an application form ahead of time with all the main data. Uh, another church needs to say, yeah, we know Joe. We know the church, their doctrine and their practices. They're with us. And then I'll make the application. I think it needs to be 90 days at least or more before the GA. So perhaps trying to get it in by the end of the year. would. It, and you can look at the data. I'm sorry it's not in front of me, but making sure that you don't miss it by a deadline or something. Sure.
0: Yeah, I think um I think there are five men on the membership committee um, yeah. and three of them are Southern California pastors if if I'm not mistaken Steve Markadont right yeah. Jason Walter and also Jeff Massey. Yes. Uh, so we're in close proximity with uh, the majority of those men. So um but I appreciate you stating these things Steve for our people to hear and um, for taking the time to record this podcast with me. I think it will really be beneficial for our people to get more of a feel of what it means to apply for membership in ARBCA, and we are really endeavoring to bring bring people along uh, so that they're informed as to what we're doing here. But, uh, yeah, thank you very much, Steve. I appreciate it.
1: Joe, I admire your creativity and your techno ability here. Back in the day, you know, um, having a phone conversation with somebody long distance was a buck a minute. Is that right? <laughs> Lots of and you didn't have a long conversation. Yeah. And that was the only means you had fellowship. And nowadays, you know, we're doing all this for virtually for free.
0: It's really nice. It's really convenient. I'm thankful for our deacon, Mike TZA, who knows what he's doing. I'd be lost with this stuff, but he comes and sets it up for me. So, yeah, it's been really enjoyable, Steve. And um, I look forward to seeing you in September, right? No, early November, excuse me, What's for the, the pastor's conference. Right. And Lord willing, you'll be able to come out and visit us at Emmaus. Uh, we really look forward to that, but uh, thanks again, Steve. Yeah, I'll
1: be on my best behavior.
0: I, well, yeah, I hope so. <laughs> I appreciate it. Well, to all well, of see. you, to all of you who've uh, listened in, I do want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. If you are a member of Emmaus Christian Fellowship, would you be prayerful about these things as we continue to, sc- to discuss them as a congregation? Um, and of course, uh, we as as an eldership uh, do do want your feedback on them. Um, but do please check back for future episodes and uh, I hope that you're blessed by them and that you're continuing to grow in Christ. Steve, you have something else you want to say?
1: Yeah, just a final note is that we're such we're so cussedly independent and every tub stands on his own bottom and we don't need other people. We're Americans. Um, if your people haven't already read um, the book by Earl Blackburn, Jesus Loves the Church and So Should You, that's a great little book and I had to repent of my bad churchmanship after I've been a Christian and impaired church ministry for six or eight years. I had to repent of my
0: – I had no doctrine of the
1: church. Mm. Um, yeah. That's not Jesus' attitude.
0: That's a timely plug, Steve. Uh, actually, I just finished teaching through that book in a membership class. Um, yeah. Our men and women have both read it. Uh, we have really enjoyed um, that book. It's helped us uh, immensely. So I agree. If you haven't read it yet, you need to read it. Uh, not a very, not a difficult book, not a complicated oh. one, but it, it really states a, a, a very biblical doctrine of the church and gives good practical advice for being a good churchman or churchwoman.
1: Wonderful, why, to too.
0: Yeah, wonderful. Well, thank you, Steve. I appreciate it very much. Good, good to close on that note. And again, if you um, if you would, please listen in to future podcasts. Until then, uh, walk in Christ. God bless.